Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest on this episode is Brendan Anderson. Brendan started his post-banking entrepreneurial career by acquiring Stamp Inc., which manufactures custom-bent tubing, before founding a private equity firm called Scaleco, where he has raised three funds and acquired 21 companies to date. He built his career by being an operator first and learning to become an investor, a path that's given him a big leg up when talking to other CEOs and potential sellers. One subject I've wanted to study more deeply is building a team that naturally attracts great people. And this is a major topic of our discussion and something Brendan has given a lot of thought to. We also talk about the use of debt combined with long-term investment time horizons, how they facilitate data and information sharing across the portfolio, and what the top idea in his mind is today. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. What is a quality of earnings report? So for most business acquisitions, if the buyer is going to be working with a bank or have investors come into place, typically what they look for is that they're is a third-party analysis being done on the business. And primarily is to be able to verify that the financial statements that are presented are true and accurate for the bank to be in position to underwrite the transaction. And so we generally think of a quality of earnings report as an audit in, in some way of the company's financial statements. But it also brings in additional value in the sense that it's not just merely verifying the company's financial information, but it's also, in many ways, looking at the quality of the underlying revenue, the earning profile of the business. So what we look into is, is one, is verify the financial statements that they're accurate. And then two is the, the quality of the underlying revenue the earnings profile of the business. And oftentimes there's uh, ABEX that is pro- provided by management in terms of non-recurrent expenses, personal expenses in nature, which is actually pretty common in the smaller business, the lower to lower middle market, just because you know, the financial statements are typically not, not being audited. So it does come with a different risk profile. And so the part of that quality of earnings exercise is to be able to determine the, the type of expenses that is not going to continue on an ongoing basis. And this re- report that we put together is basically would, would give the, the economics of the, the revenue, the expenses on a normalized basis, and the earnings on a normal, normalized basis from which we calculate a adjusted EBITDA. And depending on the type of business that we have, this could also include other components that would include working capital analysis and certain areas, depending on the deal, the transaction itself, there is some coverage around the tax diligence and the tax exposure that relates to the business that the buyer should be aware of. And the report itself is going to be provided to typically to the lenders and to the investors for their decision making in terms of what the earning profile, what the EBITDA is for the, for the company. 
Awesome. Thank you, Jerry. To learn more about Hood and Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. One fun place that I think would be interesting to start is just hearing about with, I usually start with background, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. When you look at your across your portfolio of companies, and then you look at the macro environment, what kinds of numbers or indicators do you look for that kind of, that maybe have some predictive value for the rest of your portfolio? Like, what do you generally pay attention to when you have several companies and can look at stuff and then relay that information back to your CEOs? Are there other numbers or things that you keep track of? Yeah, actually, it's, it's embarrassing. I don't think we do. I mean, I think it, you know what we're really focused on in most of the portfolio is is building the team and, and kind of building the backlog of you know kind of the future revenue and quite frankly the you know the future joint ventures or add-ons. And so, obviously, we're it's more kind of internally focused. Probably not a great answer, but it's uh, you know obviously we're we're we're, you know, we're trying to get out and talk to. Uh, you know, kind of industry people, you know, kind of what, you know, what's happening in the industry, but that also kind of falls heavily on the, you know, the operating partner, the people leading the company. They really seem to be, you know, they're the real experts in the, in the industry and the company. And we rely on that a lot. Yeah. Where do they, where do your CEOs get most of their information? Is it uh, industry friends and experts that they have calls with or exchange emails or are there certain sources where that they've found that are pretty good for getting a sense for what's going on? I think um, they all do the standard uh, uh, trade shows now that we're kind of traveling again. And they, you know, we try to build the boards of of people of you know people that know the industries or at least resources for the for the entrepreneurs. You know, I also have this theory, and as you're going to quickly figure out, I'm not horribly sophisticated when it comes to a lot of my theories, but I feel like that if you call, try to call, if you're trying to figure out an industry, and you call 10, 15 industry experts, and once they you get to the spot where, you know, do it you know, kind of on a regular basis and they all start saying similar things. And so you can kind of predict that what the next person is going to say. I mean, that's about, you know, I, I joke and I say, you know, it's, let's call 10 people and see if we can predict what the 11th and 12th person is going to say. And, you know, and that's, <laughs> Alex, that's as sophisticated as we've gotten, but it, it seems to work for us. I mean, and it also is something that can be done regularly and consistently. Yeah. I also loved hearing a little bit more about how you, try to bring your CEOs together and share ideas and go through different processes together. Can you walk through kind of the ways that you bring your companies together and allow them to exchange information and processes, best practices with each other? You know, and, and that's great. And this is, uh, you know, we've, 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 we've tried a lot of things that haven't worked and I'm, and this is one that I'm just really excited about. We, um, you know, I, I, I joked with you before we started here that, uh, you know, we, we go back and we used to sit in a room and we would analyze the companies and, and we'd kind of run them through our process and, and, you know, and the ideas kind of stop with the people in the room. And so one of the things that we, we call our process, the, the, the TAC method, and it stands for transformation, you know, you transform the company, then you accelerate the organic growth. And then obviously you can consolidate and start buying companies. And, had this kind of crazy aha moment when I was realizing that some of the operators of the companies were, you know, knew way, you know, they just had so many wonderful ideas, were so much, such, such better managers and so forth than I am. And so we really get, you know, we consider this tech method a, a kind of living, breathing process. And most of the great new ideas come from the operators. So we, so we really get them in the same room and we talk about kind of what's going on with each business and the interaction between how, you know, how, how do we gain 
you know, uh, you know how do we, if we are having a problem or, or how do we kind of accelerate or make the, make the process more efficient. And as I was saying before we jumped on, I mean, it's amazing how we've been doing something for so long that we keep asking the portfolio companies or the, you know, the, to do something. And then one of them will raise their hand and say, well, why are we doing it? And then wouldn't this be an easier way to do it? And you're like, of course it is, you know, and it's, and so it's just, you know, all profound knowledge comes from the outside. And what we find is that most, you know, most of our operating partners are obviously you know, uh, very energetic, knowledgeable people and, that, you know, they have wonderful ideas. And so why wouldn't we tap them for that? So. Can you walk through that method a little bit more, more deeply? I'd love to hear more about it. The tap method. Yeah. Sure. You know, and again, this, I always love it because it's, it's, uh, in my mind, it's a uh, transformational. And I think most people that hear it would say, oh my God, that's so simple. It's simple, but it's hard. So I look at the transformation piece. And what I would say is that, you know, if you've got to have great financial statements looking backwards on, you know, some sort of predictive measures looking forward. And, and that's much harder to do in small companies than one would think. And so we, you know, we, we spend and have wonderful resources internally here at Scaleco that focus on, the, on just getting good numbers. And, and, you know, and again, it, it sounds crazy, but when we've had trouble in the past, we've had trouble with financials, you know, just knowing where cash is, predicting cash, predicting future revenue and that sort of thing. So that there's a real deep topic there. And it sounds, again, it's, uh, you know, I've seen big companies that don't know their numbers and we've seen most small companies that are, you know, that have just lived by the, you know, whatever the amount of cash in the you know, on the balance sheet, the, the amount of, you know, cash coming in. And so that's a big piece we spend a lot of time on. And the, se- the second part of the transformation is getting the right people in the right seats. I know everybody says it, but it's absolutely key. Uh, we use a process called EUS. I know that's, that's uh, you know, kind of a, a term that maybe 10 years ago uh, when I did my original training, nobody, and now it's like, every, it's absolutely everywhere, which I give uh, Gina Wickman and the, and the uh, EOS worldwide crew a lot of credit, but it, it works. I mean, I, you know, I just, I can tell you that it's until we started using that, you know, it's, you know, you would, you would struggle with alignment, you'd struggle with vision. And, and I just feel like it's a, it's a great, it's a common language. It's a great way to get, you know, to figure out who's on, you know, who's rowing in the same direction. And, and I think it's also a great tool to say, you know, Hey, you know, this isn't, this organization isn't, you know, might not be for you. And, uh, you know, in the sense of, you know, if you don't want this growth, if you don't want to be held accountable, if you don't want to do this, things, you know, maybe this isn't, you know, this is the ideal place. And, and that, you know, unfortunately that happens periodically, but I think it also is best for everybody. So those really are the two biggest part of the transformational piece. And, and I can go on for days, but fundamentally, if you take a little business and you have great numbers and you have a great team that's aligned with a common vision, you've transformed the general business. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, in, in, in my humble opinion, and that's not as easy to do as I'm making it sound, obviously. So that's the T portion. The, the acceleration piece is most small companies that, that we love uh, are, don't have a sales force. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're the entrepreneur or they've got a couple big customers. The entrepreneur is the main salesperson, or maybe they have a couple other people. And, and we just find that, that until you can get your organic growth going, get your value proposition out there, the companies, you know, it's it's going to be stuck there. So we, you know, most small companies don't really have this, don't really have the skill set to, you know, to go hire a sales manager, train the people, you know, kind of identify the market, you know, really put together that sales infrastructure. And that's something that we think is just extremely important. And um, we also couple with, you know, the, the acceleration, some sort of uh, technology, technology enablement. And it, and sometimes it's really simple, you know, some, 
API we'll build with a with a big customer that that we can sell to other people. It sometimes it's you know sometimes it's it's you know it's, it's a much bigger. And we have a company that does payment processing for uh, large OEMs around uh, for you know, OEMs car OEMs around uh, car warranties. And I think our technology is really you know extremely good for processing the payments, the paperwork, the regulations, and so forth. And so it's weird, you know, kind of it can be all over the board, but we think that technology is a huge piece of it. And then, so now we've done the T and the A, and so which you know, we've kind of transformed the company. We've got great financials. We've got a line team that's got some vision. We can you know kind of hold people accountable. We've got the company growing organically again, and we've got a sales infrastructure with some predictive measures, and we've got some sort of technology plan. And for the technology people out there, we're not talking about the next Google or you know whatever, but it's something that we feel like is going to be value added to the customer, value added you know make our make our operations much more efficient. So we feel like it's when you have those pieces in place that you can start doing small tuck-ins, you know, add, add-ons, uh, you know, or, or bigger ones. And, and that's where we can get more money to work where, uh, you know, we can, you know, we will start relatively small, but if you can get those, get that going, you know, we're, we're have a dedicated staff to help the, you know, the portfolio find these, these add-ons and, they can be small, they can be big, they can be product lines, they can be joint ventures. And we just find that, you know, that we're in a spot where we can be very creative on that, on that piece. And that's a big part also to recruiting a lot of the people that we were trying to recruit because, you know, they don't want to come run a $5 million business forever. You know, they want to, they want to be able to get those things done and, and, you know, kind of an add on to it. And it's important to our investors too, because they want to put more money behind the, the bigger deal or the, the more, the, you know, the, the better deals. Yeah, I'd love to hear just within your, if you could walk through your background and then also kind of give us moments that influenced this process you've created. So moments where, you know, it was important to have financials or maybe you didn't have financials or technology and these other pieces, these, you know, EOS. Can you give us your journey up to this point with including points, almost points of interest along the way where all of this kind of came from, all of this, all these ideas and this focus on building a method around it? Yeah, and I, you know, I'd love to hear my background. I will say that I'm a kind of a forum junkie. Um, I've been a member of EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, for 20 years. I just joined Vistage. I've been I do a lot of other splinter groups, and I just find that those are you know for entrepreneurs out there, my God, find a mastermind group or something to do that. But I will kind of go way, way back. I out of undergrad, I became I was a banker, a lender in Chicago, and I uh, was lending to a lot of small businesses, and I often found that. Almost every time that I, when I was meeting with the entrepreneur, I wanted to be on the other side of the table. And I got so it's lucky. I had a wonderful group of uh, of my boss at the bank uh, was, was was really an entrepreneur, also hard to believe. And he was he had a, a just a wonderful group of customers that he had cultivated through you know twenty you know five years plus of a banking experience. And uh, I would complain about being a banker uh, to my boss. Into my customers, and uh, I don't suggest that for the average person, but uh, it seems to work. It worked for me, and they just said, "Well, go buy a business." And I said, "Well, how does that work?" And they helped me find a business. They helped me finance the business. And and Alex, I swear, I just thought that's the way the world worked. I was in my twenties. I just thought that people just, oh, well, you want to buy a business? Let's go find a business to buy. And I realized that you know that that was the ETA before there was such a thing or such a word or such a phrase, and. I was just lucky. And we, it wasn't, the first one was even a business. It was a bankrupt industrial park we took over. Then we went out and I helped them put a bank charter together, raised a whopping 5.2 million bucks, opened up a literally a community lending company out of a double wide trailer in Sugar Grove, Illinois. 
And, you know, but I you know, kind of got the entrepreneurial bug. I understood how, you know, that worked. And then I was living in, in Chicago, wanted to get back to Ohio. I grew up in uh, Stark County, Ohio. And I literally put an ad in the newspaper uh, basically saying, do you want to buy out your boss? And uh, a partner then, and it's still an investor today, a guy named Kent Marvin replied to the ad. He was the director of manufacturing for a, a large diameter tube bending company in Mentor, Ohio. And uh, he and I bought that company, owned it for like 19 years and uh, learned a boatload. And you talk about best practices. I mean, I talk about, you know, we went through, you know, it's a very, very cyclical business. So we're supplying people that made large equipment and moved lots of air and water and things. And, uh, you know, so we got, we got to learn how to, to grow and build second shifts. So we got to learn how to deal with the, the massive recessions. And so that, that's probably you kind know, of the first point about the financial statements and being able to predict cash and predict the future or, you know, or better predict the future and, and so forth. And, and that was one of my other things as we were talking about earlier about not necessarily in a growth deal, uh, really wanting to partner with, with banks. I mean, I think they're really good for consistent uh, working capital and things like that, but it's not good if you're going to really think about growing. And so really kind of got my, it was an operator for, for the beginning part of my career. And, but just really started kind of dreaming of what kind of that environment that I was part of in Chicago, where people would back us to, to grow companies and back people, kind of untraditional people. I uh, didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go to Harvard and I didn't go to Booth, but I still, you know, people still back me. And, I, uh, and you know, and so I, uh, we kind of dreamed of a model there and, to, you know, to do that. And so we formed three traditional funds, relatively small funds. We backed 16 management teams. And, you know, I, you know, I can tell you that, you know, there's so many things we learned during that period of time, you know, fund one, we were heavily focused in Cleveland and Chicago and turned out to be a very good fund and, you know, had a pretty tight knit, started building a pretty tight knit community. And then fund two, we were go worldwide and we started doing deals all over the country and, you know, and didn't have a very big team. And uh, really kind of, you know, that probably suffered. We uh, didn't do as well as we'd hoped. I think we, you know, we fought back pretty hard. One of the you know goals in kind of forming ScaleCo was really to build some more infrastructure to, you know, kind of support the team, the, you know, the, the teams. It's uh, much like the people in Chicago did for me many years ago. And so, you know, that, you know another lesson learned was, you know, if you're going to build a community, it's probably easier to stay to a tighter geographical area. And so, you know, we're heavily focused, drivable from Cleveland. You know, I, I'm not sure investors really care where we invest is, but, you know, we just know that we're going to be more successful if we kind of keep it, you know, keep it closer to home for, for many reasons. But uh, really just five, six years ago, I, you know, I've mentioned I'm kind of a forum groupie junkie, you know, joined uh, with the Gino Wickman at the EOS suggested that I do Vistage or I'm sorry, do a strategic coach. And again, that was kind of transformative. They're just like, you know, if you want to build, you know, do what you're doing, you've got to build the team, you know, all the things that we say we do to the other companies, we really just went back and kind of did five, you know, five, six years ago. And it's been, it's been wonderful. So fast forward to today, you know, we're, we've, we've really just kind of, you know, to me, it's, it's not about the companies, it's about the people we back. And I just, you know, we, we use a term, uh, uh, stolen from a Lincioni book, you know, we, you know, we're trying to back uh, happy people. And we define that as humble people, you know, people that, you know, kind of look, look outward, outward mindset, hungry people, you know, people that you don't have to ask to do stuff that are just always driving forward. People smart, people that are aware of what's going on, you know, aware of how, you know, what their, uh, what their actions are doing to other people. And then obviously a uh, passion for entrepreneurship. And I'm just a big believer that if you, the more happy people you can find, you know, the possibilities are endless. 
there's so many other markers I probably could have gone with Alex, but, you know, on the, on the tech method, you know, kind of looking backwards, almost of it's like kind of looking backwards on deals. Obviously we've gotten, we've gotten hurt before with not having good numbers. Uh, we're just, you know, it's hard to know what to do when you don't have good numbers. And there's many deals that, you know, the, some of the ones that are probably the worst performing deals were, were deals where we didn't, we didn't, or we lost control of those things. I would argue that team is always the most important. I mean, I know that there's that the jockey or the horse, and uh, and I would just say that it's all about the team. And I would think that uh, you know we've learned from the EOS process about you know getting it and uh, you know putting it in up front, you know making sure that people understand that that's going to be part of the process. And I just think it helps us you know kind of move much faster. And I think that that's been you know we've tried many different you know ways to do that and. One of the things that we did last year was we brought in a, our own just unbelievable resource you know, to implement EOS. You know, so we do it for the companies. It saves them some pretty good money, but it also helps us get a lot closer to what's going on. And so that's you know again many many different times that we just we weren't able to get those teams aligned and or that they would go out of alignment so fast and we weren't close enough to it. And then um, you know organic growth. I mean, Alex, there's there's so many times that we would. You know, there was a great entrepreneur with a wonderful vision, and uh, we would say, "Here's an extra million dollars. Go build a Salesforce." We'd come back, <laughs> come back two years later, the million bucks is gone, and there's no Salesforce. And you're like, you know, that happened over, you know, again, and maybe not quite that bad, but you sure didn't get the value. You, know, you didn't get that machine that you know that was that was driving forward. And and also, I think it's unfair to just say, you know, to somebody that doesn't hasn't done that before. Just go build a Salesforce. I mean, it's, there's more to it, right? You got to have the right CRM. You got to have the right message to the community. You got to know who your customers are, and and then you got to, you know. And some people just, I mean, a lot, and so we step into those shoes often, or at least we, you know, try to help that happen. And then I'll just say, you know, from a technology enablement thing, when we're able to do that, it just transforms the value. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely. You know, it's what buyers are looking for. It's uh, what our customers are looking for. It makes selling the selling easier. I'm not saying it's easy to pull off. I'm just saying that when we've done it, and so we, you know, when we go into new deals or new operators, we often just say, "What's the technology? It's it's a hook. You know, it's a what is it that, that makes us more efficient? What is it that makes the customer you know locked in? And 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 it really helps a lot. And then and obviously the 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 you know moving on to the the consolidation piece or the acquisitions, we've made huge mistakes. We've had deals that have gone horribly, but when they work, even starting small, it, you know, it really helps these small companies. I mean, you can buy a small company at a pretty fair multiple and you can start kind of tacking on some other, some other revenue that, that really gets you there a lot faster. And, and honestly, our, you know, it's, it's interesting. Our, you know, and our investors really do want more money in a deal. Uh, they, you know, we've been able to the last couple of deals get, of $15 million into them. And maybe the IRRs aren't quite as good, but uh, it does help move the needle for some of the larger investors and justifies a bigger fund. And so, and I think the, the larger investors really like to see that. So I've been rambling here for a while and I could literally tell you the 55,000 million mistakes. That's a number that we've made, but. That's great. It sounds like the second fund was a big challenge. What were some of the most notable misses within that fund or just within that time period? I imagine there's a ton of learning from fund one to fund two to fund three. I'd love to hear some of those those learning experiences. This is a long list, Alex. We I could go on for a long time. We fund one was geographically concentrated in Chicago and Cleveland. I mean, literally Chicago and Cleveland. And we could get to them. We knew them. And, and we had a small staff, and so we had five companies that were 
you know, that, that I think we knew a lot about them the whole time we owned them. In the middle of fun two, and, and, and this is, you know, it's, you look in the mirror and you want to, you know, sometimes you just want to say, I can't believe we did this, but you know, we, we were buying companies across the country, but there was a period of time between funds two and the beginning of fund three where we had companies in Seattle, Southern California, Denver, Dallas, Vegas, Mississippi, and we also had some around here too, but you know, it's very hard with a very small staff to, to take those things on. And we had a fire in Southern California, a troubled company. It's all consuming. You know, you're not going to spend time on the on the winners, and uh, or you know, it's, you're intuitively you want to spend time. You know, you want to put out the fire. And so, you know, I think we've revamped our staff, and we're much deeper now. We're you know heavily focused on you know kind of in, in including the operators of the companies in this has been so valuable. I mean, it gives us a lot of leverage. I mean, so much leverage, it's unbelievable. And keeping them closer helps a lot. I mean, you know, you have a I mentioned we went to top golf yesterday and it's just a, you can get people together. It's just, a, and I think it helps a lot and, and get their friends together. And, you know, you can help find, you know, I said the key to this is the, is the people you're investing in. I believe this to be absolutely true. One is that ca- there's just way too much cash out there and cash is a relative commodity. Again, I wish I had more, but I, you know, fundamentally, if you've got a great deal, you can find the investors to invest in it. Number two is I think the w- drivable from Cleveland and most of the United States has Lots and lots of wonderful little businesses that have been around for many, many years. They've made money in the good times and the bad times, but they just haven't grown. And so I think there are lots of those businesses around that most private equity doesn't really want to buy because they don't have a, you know, they don't have a lot of the things we talked about. They don't have a team. They don't have a sales force. They're not growing. And I think that the, the valuable commodity is the, is the, is the happy person, you know, that humble, hungry, uh, people smart person that has a passion for entrepreneurship. That's the valuable commodity, and and we believe you can that those people are have a diverse backgrounds and are in a lot of a lot more places than most people look. And you know we're gonna we're gonna do our best to find them and you know put them in the right in the right spots, and hopefully it's a transformational wealth for them. And hopefully you know one of the things that you know that we you know kind of the bigger vision for Scaleco is. Is really to get more people that have a similar background to mine. You start off, you know, operating a company. You, you know, you you help us perfect the process. You know, you learn what we're doing, and you know, ultimately, we're, we're we hope we're creating another whole pool of future fund managers or investors. And, and that's another way that I think we can attract you know the right talent is that uh, you know yes, you go in and you make some some wonderful wealth running a little business, but in the longer run. You know, there's a lot of people that should be able to invest that, that can and will be able to invest capital uh, the way that we do it and probably you know, way better than way better than I can. I think it's, you know, as we've kind of grown our staff last four or five years, the, the, the talent, the talent that understands, you know, this search world that you guys are leading, you know, it's, it's just way better than what I've got going. I mean, just, just, you know, I, I chuckle because it's, I think about if people back to me to buy a business and you look at, you know, kind of, Ex, you know, kind of young banker, so forth. There's just so much wonderful talent, you know, in Cleveland and Columbus and Detroit. And that's where we got to focus. Yeah. How do you find great talented people who are ambitious and excited and want to go work for you? Do you, do you put newspaper ads still out or what's the best way to reach local people in, in Cleveland, Chicago? You know, and, and, and that's a great, that's a great question. Honestly, tapping into networks like this one has been, has been big. 
You know, it's, it's interesting, Alex. I, if you go back, and this is a little bit embarrassing, and I'll give a shout out to Benetta Young, a uh, consultant that's been helping me think through some of this stuff for the last couple of years, Benetta Young and Associates out of DC, for anybody that wants to look. You know, she really forced me to kind of look at where our deal flow was coming from. And it was typically my network or somebody that we knew or, you know, or something. And so we, you know, we made a, you know, kind of a deliberate a goal of hiring, you know, a, a pretty diverse, wonderful, talented group of people. And, and, you know, in, in gaining and hopefully and continue to try to gain the trust of what we're trying to pull off here. But their networks are just fantastic. And so we're, we're trying to get our message out through, through venues like this. But it really is that, you know, kind of that network that kind of snowballs. And, you know, and again, I just keep saying as long as we live by our values and, and you know, try to really trust, gain the trust and inspire people, I think it'll, I think it'll, it'll, it'll snowball. There's an extremely talented operator that I met. 20 years, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, his name's Donnie Bedney, and I actually met him at Shaker Heights Country Club. His his grandfather uh, ran the the locker room, and uh, Donnie, when he was in high school, was working there, and he's just one of these extremely talented guys that had an incredible career, but he just stays in touch, stays in touch, stays in touch, and we, I, we found a little deal, and I remember picking up the phone. He was working at uh, Press Ganey at the time, and, uh, you know, a wonderful career, and I, you know, sent him the information. I said, any chance you want to take over a little company in Pittsburgh? And he's like, I'll do it. And <laughs> like three months later, he's running a company in Pittsburgh and he was, uh, and, but you know, again, I think it's, you know, his network has been extremely valuable. And then he introduces to people and we hired a young woman out of, uh, the venture capital world. And, you know, she's got an incredible, incredible network. And so I'm just going to drone on about the uh, fact that I, you know, it was the moment when I realized I had to look past my network to, you know, to, to really find, younger, uh, talented people. So, Yeah, when you started, we talked about that before and how for a lot of the early years, you've been able to just reach out to someone in your network and usually there's someone there who's awesome and you can have them come join you. But as you look to make the recruiting process more structured and professional and have a, have a pipeline going, what does that look like? How do you think about building that pipeline and recruiting on a, on a, lately, a slightly larger scale? A couple, three months ago, a young, talented uh, manager joined us. His name is uh, Andrew Newsom, and he's got incredible management experience. He's been a fanatic kind of search ETA person, you know, kind of, a, he's a, I think grew up, in, grew up in Washington and is living here, actually the same hometown as I live in now in Shaker Heights. And it's, it's his, you know, we, we've hired him to kind of to get out there and, and meet people and, and tell our story and recruit and, and as much. You know, it's amazing, Alex, I think back to the deals we did and it was literally like we would get some information on a company and I would say, oh my God, I know somebody, you know, and so let's, you know, that, that, that deal could get done because we could put the piece of the puzzle together. And so now Andrew and, and any, and, and, and the team here, you know, we have a higher probability of kind of finding a match for a company that we, you know, that we think, oh, okay, this is meets the criteria. Now we got to find the person to do it. And, and so Andrew's charged with that right now. And, you know, we're all charged with it, but Andrew's the primary person. And, you know, and so we're still figuring that out, Alex, but, uh, but Andrew's going to, he's very good. So once you have someone who has been a good fit for you and is doing an awesome job, how do you keep them? How do you make sure that they're continually excited to stay with you and help continue building your companies? And I'd love to hear a little bit about some large scale things you do to, to keep people excited and, Maybe even some like small tactical stuff. Like there was a medium business I saw recently that has a unlimited Amazon Kindle purchases as like a small benefit to working there. 
I would love to hear like all up and down the the size range of benefits or engagement that you have for 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 folks that you're excited about and you want them to stay. And and, and you know, look, I think I think we're we're at a spot now where we are you know we're, we're continuing to learn and hopefully you know get better at, at retaining people. I would say that one of the the promise, the biggest promise we make to people when they come in is that we want to help them with their entrepreneurial journey. So, uh, you know, whether they want to come in and eventually run a company, whether they want to, you know, help us you know, develop the tech method, work with the portfolio and someday be a, a maybe even a fund manager. Uh, we're, we're, our goal is to, is to, you know, really build the scale community. And, and I'm just absolutely convinced that the more we, the more we include these, you know, everybody, we can teach the tech method that it, it'll help in that regard. Having said that, we're big believers in sharing equity. I mean, I, you know, that was I couldn't believe. And when I was in my late 20s, people let me have a piece of a business. And that was life transforming. And so that's a, that's a big piece of, of what we're doing here. You know, we're, we're asking, we share some equity around the portfolio, you know, because, you know, we kind of charge all the, all the operators to help each other grow. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, again, if, if I have a, somebody that if somebody wants to join the team and they come in and just absolutely you know, kick some butt and help some companies grow, earn some equity, and they want to go off and do something else someday. I mean, I'm a big supporter. We had two younger guys that uh, helped us for three years. Uh, were just unbelievable. They were, you know, just believed in what we were doing. But, you know, they set the record straight very early in the game that they wanted to go buy their own business and ideally wanted to, you know, uh, you know kind of create a family business that they would own themselves. They were two high school buddies, Wiley Runnestrand and uh, Mike Martoff. And they went in the beginning of this year. They left and started a uh, an ITAD, uh, IT asset disposition business, a business that we, we taught them. We have a business like that in, in Mississippi. And we're fully supportive of it. We just think it's a huge part of the scale community. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful for us that, you know, they, they're in Youngstown, Ohio, and, or outside of Youngstown, Ohio. And they, 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 they think you mostly say great stuff about us. And, and we even have them, uh, you know, kind of still represent us in some of the things we're doing in Youngstown. So it's, again, it's, it's, you know, you know, I don't have a great answer other than we're just going to be open, transparent, and you know, hope everybody you know has the same entrepreneurial passion that we do. So, when you say fund route, and you we want to give that option to people who are ambitious and want their own fund one day, what kind of fund does that look like? What, what how does that path work? Yeah, I don't know. We're going to find out. But what I believe is this: is that what we can do is provide you know, obviously, credibility that they know how to run a business. What we can do is provide investment track record, and what we could do is be you know, the lead, the lead investor in a, in a fund. And so, and what I believe, and again, we'll, we'll figure this out is that, you know, that the market is so big in our world that there's kind of an unlimited number of, of these small companies and, you know, the capital is there. It, I, what I know is that our investors want us to put, you know, more money in these good deals. And so you think about how to develop, you know, a diverse group of fund managers, if you can give them operating experience, if you can give them a track record, and if you can, if you can give them a, you know, kind of the starting capital, I think that's a pretty good recipe for, for at least a start, right? And then it's up to them to see what they can do from there. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any career advancement advantages to having multiple companies? Like if one person is doing really well in one company and they want to try something different eventually, and you have another company that they might be able to work for that you already own or have some interest in, do you see that happening? Is that, is that a, a path or like idea that folks take advantage of, or is that less common than, than you've seen? Obviously, I think it's really important that if somebody's running a business that, you know, that's their main priority, that's where they're going to really be able to make that kind of transformational wealth. But, but absolutely. I mean, we're, we're desperate to have 
other, I mean, there, there's just always needs in, in every one of these companies. And so we're absolutely convinced that, uh, you know, that in, again, kind of expanding that network, including them in these things is a, is a big piece. And we have in the past when companies run, have run into trouble, you know, we have used other resources. We've used managers from other companies to kind of step in and you, know, you figure out a way to, to make it make sense. We've talked a lot about having a long-term mindset and having LPs who are happy to be involved in businesses for a very long time. I'd be really interested to hear what are some ways that you're able to run companies that you intend to hold for a long time that are different than if you had to turn around and sell them in three, four or five years. Like, What does that allow you to do with a time horizon like that? Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I can't imagine operating in a time horizon where, you know, you felt like you had to do something. And again, I'm just, you know, again, I maybe not smart enough to figure that stuff out. But, but I, to me, it's, it, you know, the more you take the long term mindset, the more you invest for the future, the more you hire, you know, the higher, you know, higher for the future, the easier it is to build a company. And quite frankly, the easier it is to, you know, I think you're driving value. And so in a weird way, it's like by doing those long term mindset things, you know, you're, you're increasing the possibilities of even selling in a shorter period of time. Now, you know, once you get those things and you probably choose not to, but I, I think it's, I, I, you know, again, I, I think when you take the longer term mindset, it just, it opens up just so many more possibilities, you know, about what, what can happen in the company. And look, we've run, you know, we've run funds where it kind of gets to an end and, it's not much fun to be in a spot where you've got a really killer asset and a killer management team with lots of excitement and you're selling to a mid-market fund that then turns it into a $50 million EBITDA business. I mean, it's a, you know, it's again, you know, <laughs> you're happy for the team, but some of our investors are like, well, wait a minute, why don't, you know, why aren't we participating in this and why aren't we facilitating this and, and, you know, making it easier on, on the operators too. Yes. Yeah, so how does that make the operators lives easier? Like what kind of freedom does someone at a scale co company have that would be really hard to replicate elsewhere? You know, all I'll tell you is I think the freedom that they have, and, you know, and, and this may be, I'm not sure how different it is, but, you know, I, the vision of growth, the vision for growth uh, for, you know, our companies largely comes from the team. And, you know, the, the, the you know, again, we'll, we're going to really focus on attack method and make sure a lot of that blocking and tackling is getting done. But I think, as it relates to where the growth goes and kind of the, the sorts of ideas, it's really up to them. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think it's the, you know, the freedom to chase that and kind of transform the business as, you know, as they see fit. And as long as, you know, kind of we're working in the TAC method, methodology and so forth, you know, I, hopefully we were unleashing their, you know, their entrepreneurial spirit where, you know, kind of, you know, they have confidence and trust that we'll, you know, that if, as long as they're doing what they, you know, what we all agree they would do, that we'll be there for the add on capital and, and so forth. And again, I, never worked in an official private equity fund. So, uh, you know, to me, I'm very sympathetic to the entrepreneur. I'm very sympathetic to the operators. And I know how, how hard it is to do what they're doing. Maybe it's a mentality, you know, kind of, it's just, you know, we're, we're here to kind of make sure that those companies grow. And I think the great thing about our model, and it's, you know, is that if we can make sure in the deals where the entrepreneurs, the operators make a lot of money and, you know, kind of make that transformational wealth, everything else takes care of itself. You know, yeah, I mean, every, every, everything else works. Yeah. And I would also love to hear a little bit more about within these, within a time horizon like this, where you're, you're able to think very long term and you have operators who are excited to build your companies for a while. How do you view debt in a scenario like that? I imagine it's, it's helpful in some areas or like as the company's growing, like there must be some way that 
that debt becomes a factor or becomes an option on the table that's maybe more or less interesting. What's your view of debt within a long-term time horizon like this in companies that it sounds like generally are growing? No, and I, I think that you know we learned through the downturn and through some other things that maybe if you're buying a small company, you, you don't use debt in the beginning. That's uh, eight nine hundred thousand of EBITDA. You get it up to two million dollars, and then you start borrowing. But you start borrowing for expansion. You start borrowing for for growth. You start borrowing for you know uh, neat little add-in acquisitions and, and that sort of thing. And that's that's really where we where we are at. We don't you know we don't try to tend to push that too hard. And so, you know, and then once you get up into the you know, over five million bucks. Uh, you know, again, I, I I think you know, obviously the lending environment gets gets really um, you know gets easier. I mean, not easy. I, I would also say that you, you know, in a small business, the terms of debt change, right? I mean, if you're a really small business, you know, the bankers want personal guarantees, and they want it changes the dynamic of of debt. And then you know, once you get over a certain EBITDA to maybe, you know, the, the guarantees start going away, they'll actually start looking at the company, they'll start looking at cash flow lending, and, and that changes the dynamic. And so we really try to, we start using the banks when we can kind of get that next tier of borrowing, if that's ideally. And I think I, I may have mentioned to you that we, we actually have lent with, um, and almost all of the deals in those beginning years, if there's some working capital that needs to be done, you know, our, our fund has actually lent the money. It's just, you know, quite frankly, easier to do it in the beginning phases when, you know, during that phase of, you know, is the other personal guarantees and so forth. And that's something that we, we make sure that, you know, our operators don't have is uh, personal guarantees. You know, it's just not, I mean, obviously it's, it's hard to make growth decisions when your house is on the line. It just, you know, the only thing on debt, we just don't push it. We don't just not something that we feel like we need to get our returns. When the companies get bigger and we hold them maybe for a longer term, you know, when, uh, we will kind of push, you know, push that a little harder. But it's just not something we feel like we need to, to push very hard to, to get the returns we need. I mean, if, you know, if you go across our portfolio through the history, you know, again, if you get a small company growing profitably, that cash flow pays for a lot of growth. And that's <laughs> our favorite kind. And, but, you know, I, I, you know, you know, have we put maybe two turns on at times? We have, but it's probably, you know, again, that, that's probably in the, once it gets over 3 million of EBITDA and we feel like it's extremely stable and, and so forth. And it, it is almost, I mean, it's always for growth. You know, it's for, for something that we think is, you know, going to accelerate the growth. And uh, so that's uh, not very sophisticated, but that's my, uh, that's my game plan is staying on very, not sophisticated. Yeah, Absolutely. What's the top of mind idea for you right now that you've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks or couple of months that you're really excited about or just spending a lot of time thinking about at Scalco? I mean, we talked touched on it earlier is just the the snowballing effect of getting some of you know getting these entrepreneurs out there and building this network of people you know kind of supportive operators and 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 the more I think about it, the just the absolute more I'm convinced that it's going to work and it's uh and it's a, it's a lot of fun. And so, so, so it really is that snowballing effect of, of what, what's happening here. And I just think that, uh, you know, everywhere I turn now, you know, and talking to investors and talking to the entrepreneurs, talking to these small business owners, there's an, a huge need for it. There's so many of these small business owners that are maybe 60, 70 years old, and they're really not sure what to do with their business, making you know a million dollars of EBITDA, and they want to make sure that their employees are taken care of, and that the future of the business is taken care of, and and so forth. And so, you know, the concept of of finding the right uh, 
operator, leader, manager to put in there is just, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's a lot of fun. I probably like it too much. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, well, it's a good place to focus a lot of energy on for sure. Definitely some higher returns of people. Moving into closing questions, what college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? It's funny. It's an easy one. I, I always say that it's some sort of personal finance, how money works class. I just find it amazing. You get to a spot in life where people have no idea about debt. They have no idea about you know how compounding interest works. They have no idea how taxes work. They have no idea how fees work. And again, I'm sure you know they're smart people. If they sat there and thought about it, it would make sense. But I'm just, uh, I, I just think that I can't believe you get all the way through graduate school and nobody sat down and tried to explain to you how, how all that works. So that's, that's probably the easy one for me. What do you think? Well, yeah, I love that one too. I, I did a speech in, in high school. I was on the speech and debate team. We did a speech on personal finance classes in high school, which still not really sure if that would work or not. But if you were to run a personal finance course, like what concepts and ideas would you want to focus the most on that you think are most commonly misunderstood? I think it's the, the impact of spending, the impact of that if you don't, you know, that if you probably the compounding interest, if you had, you know, if you actually could put money aside and let it grow, you know, how wonderful that is. And, you know, the impact of, of spending decisions, the impact of kind of just not having money work for you as opposed to, you know, you working for your money. It's, you know, a little of the rich dad, poor dad mentality. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, and so it's also, you know, again, being a, being a, uh, somebody that loves entrepreneurship, you know, the kind of the concept of, you know, finding something that you really love to do and people pay you for and, uh, and then saving, you know, it's a uh, capital gains, you know, how, how, you know, it's like you own a little business, how the, how the, how the wealth generates and you don't have to pay tax on it every year until you sell it, you know, contrary to, you know, or having a job. And so I'm not sure that's, First in the in the uh, in the uh, you know first first week in the personal finance class, <laughs> it's definitely something towards the end. Yeah, certainly. The Berkshire Hathaway meeting was this past weekend, and someone asked Buffett and Munger what they should be doing in an inflationary environment where inflation's really high and it's really uncertain. And Buffett's response was, "Invest in yourself and develop your skills and find a passion and something that you're." excited about and good at and just invest in that skill because that skill can't be inflated away. And I thought that was just, I thought that was really, really topical and, and really well said. I, 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 and I've heard him say that before and, and I, it's a, it's a killer response, right? I mean, it's just, it's absolutely, you know, it's on. And, and I think it's not to, again, this is self-promotion, but I just, I don't think most people believe that they can go buy a small business. Most people, you know, don't, I mean, again, and I didn't, you know, somebody showed me how to do it. And so I think most people think of that you got to have some crazy, wonderful idea and you got to go out and start the business and do that sort of thing. And, you know, just, you know, I bent tubes for 19 years and, uh, you know, learned a lot about, about truck exhaust and heavy equipment and, you know, moving air and moving water and chillers and so forth. So it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's amazing what you know people do on this planet to, uh, you know, to, to make a pretty compelling living. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? It's, again, it's an easy one. I, I would have bet the farm 20 years ago. If you introduced best practices to an existing a founder, an existing entrepreneur, that 95% of them would have ran to that, embraced it, and, and just set the world on fire. And I think uh, Gino Wickman uses the phrase, letting go of the vine. And I'm just, uh, it's just you know, through history... We haven't been very successful convincing 
you know, the founders of these smaller businesses that, that some of the things we're doing, you know, really help you transform the business. I, you know, it's, it's not universal, but I would have bet the farm that 95% of them would have fully embraced it and ran towards it. And, uh, you know, what we have found through time is that, that it really does take that outside manager transformational person team to transform the business. And I'm, you know, it kills me because I would have bet a lot of money on the other side, but I was wrong so far. That's a good one. What's the best business you've ever seen? So obviously there's a long list of wonderful businesses that everybody knows about, but I'm a little biased towards the teams that we have backed. So uh, you're probably not surprised by that, but uh, there's an entrepreneur that we, again, I found through an ad I put in the paper and I, it was, again, do you want to buy out your boss? And he approached me about doing a startup. He, it was a real estate transactional services business that he wanted to do. He worked for a big, a big uh, title insurance company. And, and I said, well, we don't do startups, but is there some company around that we could buy and you could you know, grab your team and we could and put them in? And he said, yeah, I do actually know one. There's one down in North Carolina called The Accurate Group. And uh, Paul Doman and his team have absolutely just killed it. He's a software-enabled real estate service. They do back office services for banks, a uh, business that uh, those guys have, uh, you know, the whole team, I think it, they went from 30 employees to over 400 to, you know, from... Five million bucks to well over well over a hundred million bucks. Just really creative, sticky business. Just a neat, neat business. And just you know, and, and you talk about a happy person, a you know, humble, hungry people, smart, uh, passion for entrepreneurship. And yeah, this is you know, that, that the type of people that if you call and you want to nominate them for some big award, they're like, no, I don't. Yeah, you know, don't mention my name to anybody. You're like, all right, that's cool. You know, <laughs> that works. That's my favorite. I mean, we have, and I, you know, it just that's one of the older ones. So, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of other favorites in the portfolio, but you know, that's one that's really proven a, you know, a wonderful test of time. And it's a deal we did in '09. It's been a, it's been fun to watch it go. And I have high expectations for all the other ones. Certainly, definitely high expectations. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your time. This has been really fun. I always appreciate getting to chat with folks who've been exposed to a lot of businesses and been involved for a really long time in their communities. So it's. It's always really fun to chat with folks like yourself. So thanks for sharing a little bit of your time. No, thank you so much. And I, and I appreciate your uh, sharing of your knowledge about the ETA and search world because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really, really a neat, dynamic, open community. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. 